0: Good morning. morning. All right, so this morning we'll be reading from Ephesians 6, specifically verses 10 through 20. So if you'd like to use your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 979. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak.
1: Thank you, Lord. Well, if you've been looking forward to this passage for a number of reasons, you're not alone. I think Paul was looking forward to this passage or statement from the beginning of his letter. In fact, it might be the central message he's trying to communicate, a way to summarize what he's been saying all along and we'll dig into that in a moment. Others of you have been looking forward to this because it just means the coming of the end of a sermon series and then something new and you just are that kind of person and you're looking forward to something new and I'm kind of uh, looking forward to it for both reasons. I I have hope for what is to come. I plan to return to Acts. For those of you that have been around, we, we did a long intro to Ephesians. We worked from Acts 1 through Acts 20 to get to Ephesians, seeing the church in Ephesus planted by Paul, and then we've jumped into this letter uh, for just a few months. In fact, I looked, uh, I think the first message was the first week in March last year. So we've only been in it for just a little while, and it's coming to an end so quickly. I feel like we should just really uh, linger here, uh, really squeeze the metaphor, Uh, take each piece of armor and dissect it and press it and probably modernize it. Uh, The M16 of the Spirit, the tank treads of the gospel, the Kevlar of righteousness, and the night vision helmet of salvation. (laughs) And then apply it to our lives in every which way we can. And before groaning inwardly too much, I hear you. Um, Take heart. I think I can take this passage in at least regarding the armor in one message, certainly it's worthy of more. All of God's word is worthy to to mine and to dig and to draw out. Don't hear me incorrectly. Uh, and then I will finish, I intend to finish, Deo Valente, Lord willing, next Sunday on prayer as the last word of this letter, which is essentially how Paul ends besides a few uh, housekeeping notes and say hi to friends and... Come to me soon, those kinds of things he puts at the ends of his letter so that's the that 's the thought here really the um, the passage is less about the armor of God, although that probably is the heading in most of your Bibles and so again, honor to those who have gone through and added numbers and headings to try to help us find things more quickly. but the thrust of this passage is less to do with the armor of God as it is to recognize the spiritual realm, the spiritual battle that we are facing day to day. And then Paul's call, his encouragement, if not exhortation, to the church, the whole church, to stand firm, to be strong in the Lord because of who he is and what he has done. That's the message that Paul has been communicating. Uh, the, the picture, the metaphor of the armor, uh, which has been discussed and talked about ad nauseum, I think, uh, is helpful tool, but let's not get lost in that discussion and miss the exhortation that Paul gives, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is, I think, what Paul has been building to. After everything that he's said, he wants to end with this. Be strong. Stand firm. This is more than a holy, hang in there. Life's tough and hard, so just grip and hang in. No, this is a exclamation point. This is a uh, live victoriously because Christ has been victorious. The way he's laid out this letter, uh, if you've been tracking with us, you know. The first half, he's building uh, all of the foundations, the reminders of the gospel, of who God is and what he's done. Therefore, here's who we are, church. And the second half is, this is what life then looks like. Because of that, because of our identity in him, because of how deeply we are loved and pursued, here then is what life looks looks like and so he's been built into this all along live victoriously because christ has been victorious the whole thrust of his letter we can easily become overwhelmed in life by trials by temptations these battles that we face to various degrees we might describe them have we forgotten the promises of god or do we simply not believe them We may declare them, but what does our life look like? If you could peel back the layers to see our attitude within us. Is it firmly founded upon the foundation that Paul has been building for us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we could stand firm? You you can't stand firm, no matter what your strength is, without a firm foundation to stand upon. We were even singing about that this morning. In Christ alone. Let's remember what Paul really he's has begun and now is bookending. I think this whole letter, just because we've been in it a, a year or so, is no excuse to not have held this fully in mind when this letter should have been heard and read in one sitting. Basically, uh, let's hold this beginning in mind and see how it makes sense to the way Paul has ended it, which we have just heard in Ephesians 1.18, Here's his prayer for the church. And we know prayer was such a central thing for Paul. He began with it, he ends with it, and it was central throughout, just as our vision for 2020 is in alignment. I pray that out of of your hearts would be enlightened, that you would know the hope to which Christ has called you, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you see, Paul is bookending his letter now with this call to stand firm, to be in the strength of the Lord, to be dressed in his armor for the battles that we face. And he's reminding us yet again, if we hold this in mind, that there is no trial or temptation or opposition or persecution or battle that Jesus hasn't triumphed over. And Paul is praying to the church and therefore to all that would come in the lineage of the church. Because the age of the church has not ended. We are still in it. So for the last 2,000 years, and it's right to then receive his prayers even for us and to pray them one to another. I pray that your hearts would be enlightened. Lights would be on. That you would know it. And that you would live it. And if Paul could say that, as we're reminded in in verse 20 here of this passage in 6, he's in chains. He's in prison in Rome. Maybe a little, a little different than our, our jail cells or prisons today. It was some form of house arrest. Maybe he had ability to move in a in a room. He was waiting trial before Nero, Emperor Nero. Not a good place to be. None of us, I think, would trade places with Paul. As difficult or hard as life might be, we find ourselves in wanting to escape and run and trade with any number of people, circumstances. None of us would trade with Paul. Waiting to be executed, and he would, by Nero. Uncertain if, I just think of him, and every every time that key turned in the lock, or that door handle turned, wondering if that's the moment that he's going to go before Nero. Still believing that God can vindicate and deliver But also aware that he may not, as he said in the letter to the Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And God's planted me here too, he said. Even Paul preached amongst the imperial guard. Hey, here's a captive audience. He's chained to me for this whole day. I'm going to preach. And many actually came to faith, he declares in Philippians, amongst the imperial guard. And he says, without this happening, how would they have even come to faith? Because they would not have heard. So to God be glorified. And to live with that kind of purpose and power that Paul had. How could he speak that way? How could he live with that kind of resolve? Because he knew that the victory had been won. Jesus has already triumphed over all earthly skirmishes and battles. And yet, Paul says the primary battle is in the heavenly realms. It's not against the soldier or the soldiers deployed by Nero or even an emperor himself or even an empire That's not where the battle wages. It's in the spiritual realm. It's eternal in nature and scope. We must never forget that. We are spiritual beings first and foremost. We live in these earthly tents. Paul describes it elsewhere. These bodies of bone and flesh and muscle. But that's not who we are. We are spiritual. We are souls that's what God has created with the physical United and bound it's who Jesus was when God created the world spiritual the spirit was fully active and present he created a physical world he called it good we're not to run from either but at, at our at, at our deepest level our identity is at a soul form is spirit form and is eternal because God has made it eternal the eternal God has made us in his image. And we cannot forget that. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew ten twenty eight. he says, don't fear those who can kill your body, who can destroy the flesh. Fear the one who rules over body and soul, heaven and hell, all eternity. That's the one that we need to be fearful of in a holy awe kind of way. The one who holds all things. Do we know this to be true? Do we live with this constant awareness of the spiritual realm? Paul would have us be awoken to it. He says in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, O sleeper. See, we can be numb to the spiritual. And I've certainly preached on that a number of times throughout this series. Wake up, church, is Paul's call to the Ephesians. Wake up to the reality of what's around you. The true reality of the battle even we face as he brings this metaphor to bear. The the trials, the temptations, the pain, the suffering, the conflict may all be very real in the physical, in the earthly. But the bigger picture is there's a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual battle because we are souls created to be image bearers of God. So if you have ever faced, if you, trial, temptation, pain, suffering conflict and you've wondered or just been so deeply unsettled by what you're seeing or experiencing in the physical and your your soul your heart would ask is this all there is or or is there not more to this it just doesn't make sense it's the right question it's the right posture it's the question paul would be asking us to say yes there is more to it. There's more to what than what we see, more than meets the eye. More than the flesh and the blood. There's a spiritual battle. There's forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That battle is against ultimately the devil himself. The term devil means deceiver, which he is. Jesus called him a liar that's his native tongue. He's the father of lies. He deceives just like he did to Adam and Eve he takes truth and twists it that's really the the core character trait of the enemy he's also an adversary satan he's against he's against the goodness of god the purposes of god the will of god so he will fight to steal to kill and destroy that's who he is at his core paul's already been already been making us aware of both the heavenlies and the spiritual realm. In Ephesians 2, the beginning of Ephesians 2, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the one who currently rules. He's prince, he's not king, there's a greater king, but he's been given or entrusted or allowed authority over things for a time A transaction really took place with Adam and Eve when they gave over to him that authority. And it was kind of symbolized instead of signing, they didn't sign their soul away. Any number of movies or ideas or pictures come to mind. They believed in his lie and the transaction was, and here's the fruit. And they took it and they ate. They consummated it through a meal essentially and they gave over authority to Satan. A transaction took place. Jesus reversed that upon the cross. He reversed that transaction. Therefore, all who believe in him find life in him. While we still battle in the spiritual realm against this adversary, this prince, we live in this dark world with corrupt and sinful people of whom we are some following the course of the world, following our own desires, which is the definition of sin, by the way. Anytime we turn from the the goodness of god the promises of god intimacy with god we turn to our own perspectives our own desires our own self-centeredness that's sin that turning is sin and that can be obviously expressed itself in any number of ways but really the actions the behaviors are not primarily the sin that god is concerned with he's concerned with the turned heart, away from him. And he longs to draw it back to himself. The return, turning back, is simply repentance. Literally, that's what that means. To recognize I'm going the wrong direction, believing the wrong things, on the wrong path. My actions, attitudes, and behavior have shown it. I am repenting. I am turning around and moving the right direction. It's not just a turn. It's a turn and go in the right direction. That's repentance these words sin and repentance can we can even have a visceral reaction to them sometimes by the by the fault probably of teachers of the word by believers by Christendom we got to rightly understand they are a gift a gift to understand that, that sinning is simply turning from God's promises and, and repentance is truly a gift the ability to turn around there's no condemnation in that the recognition that we have all turned, like Isaiah the prophet says, to our own will and to our own way. Like sheep, we've gone astray. Everyone. There's no one righteous in that regard. Some of us have run faster and further and harder, but every one of us has turned hard away from God. Doubted, distrusted, disbelieved. We're all sinners in that regard. And we have been given the opportunity of repentance to turn and to come to him. By his grace, he allows it. Jesus came while we were yet sinners to save us. Not because we had already turned and followed him did he come to take us the rest of the way. While we were still on the path of sin, he came to live and die and draw us back to make a way. Not in my notes, must have needed to be said, so there we go. Awake, O oh sleeper, open your eyes to see what's truly going on the spiritual realm. Now, there's good news and there's bad news to this. How many of you are, you know, you get that, good news, bad news. How many of you are good news first all the time? Give me the good news. I want to hear that first. Anyone? A few of you, just give it to me. You want to hear. Okay. I'm a, I'm a bad news first kind of person. If I know there's, if I know there's bad news coming and I, I, I'm just not, I don't know how good that news is. Because if the bad news is really bad, then that may not have been good news at all. So just give me the bad news, and I know at least there's good news coming. That gives you an insight into my pessimism. I call it realism, but others disagree with that. So there's bad news. The bad news is this. It's worse than you thought. The consequences of the battles we face in life aren't just earthly. They're eternal. The opposition we face is stronger, more devious, and more evil than we had imagined. It is legion, and this legion wants to steal, kill, and destroy, to rob us of peace, joy, hope, and freedom, and it will not stop. And by the way, it's subtle and crafty and often not overt. Now you need the good news, don't you? You needed it first. I'm going to give it to you now. We were just talking in our ministry team yesterday of the need for good news to be good news. And if we don't identify, if it, even if, if we're trying to, so gospel means good news, and if we're trying to share the gospel, share the good news with others, neighbors, friends, coworkers, and even as we're saying it, or even before we say it, we think, they don't want to hear that. That's not the gospel. You haven't got it yet because it will it will be good news. It may be hard to receive or hard to align our life with. It may mean change and that could be hard, but it will be good news. And if we don't identify the bad news, the pain, the suffering, the longing to be able to speak into it, we may miss the opportunity to truly present the gospel. The good news. If the good news is healing, life, transformation, freedom, victory, peace, hope. It should sound good. People might say, I don't believe it. That doesn't mean it didn't sound good. The good news is the enemy, this enemy who's worse than we thought, has already been defeated. God is not bound to time in this world as we are. He is above it as he's looking down upon it. Entering into it, these stretch our capacities, these mysteries of who God is to at his deepest level, and yet he's not bound as we are. So, the victory is won. The end has been written. It is finished. And Jesus said all those things. We in our midst are still in these skirmishes, the ongoing battle. And often the greatest enemies, think of even uh, earthly armies that got defeated under Hitler's reign. Just pick pick one. When, when the writing was on the wall, he had no more forces, no more resources. It was over. Did he stop? He energized everyone to the nth degree. He fought harder at the end. And it tends to be what, what happens. It makes sense that the enemy, if he's leading a spiritual army. Even if the writing's on the wall, he's working even harder. Whether he believes he can win or just inflict damage, I don't know. But he is not done fighting. And yet the victory has been won. It has been decided. Those who follow Jesus aren't just reminded that we're playing for the winning team. I never liked that analogy as a sports player. What what, what good is it competition if you know you're going to win. If you so are are so superior of your competition... I grew up with a brother who is six years younger than me. You can ask him about this. Actually, it was kind of fun. Never mind. No. Bad analogy. <laughs> but truly in sport, if you knew the end was written... And Catherine and I will go back on this all the time. She likes sometimes to know the score when we sit down to watch. But I think it's more it has to do with the attitude that she's going to get from her husband... That she likes to be prepared for. I can't imagine. I love. I love DVR. I-, I almost never watch anything live anymore because uh, I can save a whole lot of time. But if I know the score, if I, I don't even want to watch the game anymore. The end is written, and so we are in the midst of a a battle. We are in the midst of a a, a war, not just a, a game, not just we are on the winning team. So what what, what motivation is that? To live, to stand firm. It's much deeper than that. In fact, the promise we have is that our warrior king, who is already victorious, is also fighting with us, even through us, in the very battles that we face. He's equipped us and provided everything we need to stand firm. He is the foundation. He is the rock. And he is the equipper of all the armor. And just a few observations on the armor as a whole. To shape. I mean, we could dig into each one and press it. I won't. But just a few observations. If the primary call to arms, so to speak, call to action is to stand firm. Four times, Paul says, some form of stand, stand, withstand. Stand firm. That's the call. A couple observations. We're not called here to fight the enemy. We're not called to take ground, to come up with counter schemes to the enemy. We are called to stand firm. To not give up any ground. To not turn and run. By the way, if you read through the list of armor, you'll you'll get, I think, pretty quickly, there's not much protecting our backside. Maybe that breastplate of righteousness was too full, I don't know. But there's not much there. We are called to stand, and that's how we've been equipped for the onslaught. Not much protecting if we turn. Just saying. So we're called to stand. There are other passages of Scripture that speak to the advancing nature of the kingdom, of the army that we are a part of. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Jesus said, Matthew 16. So there's there's some sense or semblance of advancing in battle. But primarily the picture Paul has here is stand firm. Give up no ground. And the enemy has no authority to take it from you. Because in Jesus Christ, you have been equipped with everything you need. James, the apostle, says it this way. Submit yourselves to God. This is James 4, 7, and 8. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So in two sentences, he's summarized everything that Paul said in a paragraph. And to each have different gifts, of course. No metaphor here, so we lose the flavor, but yet he says the same. Submit to God, just as Paul says, be strong in the Lord and his strength. Resist the devil, stand firm against the enemy, against his attacks, and he will flee. You have power and authority over Satan because of what Christ has done living in you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. He has equipped you with everything you need, with truth, righteousness, salvation, the knowledge of the gospel, with faith and with His word. Stand firm then. That's the call. Don't fear. Be faithful. Joshua 1.9 comes to mind. The Lord says to Joshua, as He's about to enter the battle to lead Israel. Against the giants, by the way, right? That was the scouting trip. Against the giants, they were vastly outnumbered and overpowered. But they had the Lord on their side, and the Lord says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus said the same thing to the disciples, and therefore to the church. You just read this in Matthew 28. If you're journeying with us through the Gospels this year. And Jesus said, first, he said, we, we, okay, this is the, one of the most well-known quotes of Jesus, commissions of Jesus. It's is called the Great Commission. It's probably the hallmark verse for the Alliance family and really, I think, for the church. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. If we just... Just say that. We've then taken that out of context. Jesus started with, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. We cannot pull those apart. And then how did he end? And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the only hope we have to fulfill the Great Commission He has all authority, he's given it to us, and he is with us. Stand firm. Paul's already, another observation for the armor. Paul's already been using this language, chapter 4. Put off, he uses dressing kind of language, put off the old self, put on the new. And do this daily, that's the, the, the tense of this exhortation. So he's saying the same thing. Put on this armor daily. Get dressed in it again, because the battle is on. And I would just say, don't go out half naked into battle. And Paul knows that too. He says, put on the full armor, not just pieces of it. Be fully dressed, be fully equipped. Remember also, another observation. Paul is writing to a church, a group of people, not individuals, If you read through this and you hear this, we're so individualistic in our culture. And you see yourself on a battlefield, depending on how your mind imagines things, whether you're half-dressed or not, you're on the battlefield and you're on your own. You're Achilles. You're David facing Goliath. Get that picture out of your mind. You're in an army. You disappear in the army. You're shoulder to shoulder with a multitude. That's the picture Paul has in mind. He's calling the church to stand firm. Not you as an individual. Yes, I hope you stand firm too. It's vital. The shield that he has in mind is not just this frisbee type shield that you would deflect in short battle. The shield he has in mind is more like a door sized. You could hide behind it. And the, the, the sides would link together to the next shield to create a, a bulwark, a wall. They would wrap this shield in thick leather and they would dip those shields in water. They were heavy. They weren't meant to charge and face combat. They were meant to stand firm, maybe to incrementally take position. And any flaming arrows that came down would bounce off, or if they did stick, would be extinguished by the wet leather that wrapped these shields. That's the picture. So of course, turning and running leaves a gap in that wall. You do have an individual response to this, but the call is collective. That you are not alone. You're not out there in battle to the enemy alone. Also one of his greatest lies. That he is going to take you away, weaken you, make you vulnerable. That you are alone. You're the only one battling. That's when he can destroy you. Which leads into the other observation. Satan's greatest enemy, Satan's greatest weapon is his tongue. And it is forked. He doesn't come at us with a sword or a club. Look at how he came at Adam and Eve. With an idea. With a doubt. Seeding something into their life. He does the same to Jesus. He comes at him with his tongue to deceive To speak a lie. And why does he do this? This is truly dirty warfare. Because he could take us out if he's given some kind of authority. We see in Job, God actually has to release any kind of authority to him over us. Because we're his, the Lord's, not Satan's. If he's given that kind of authority to actually take us out, to chop us down, to destroy us. We know it's his character, it's his desire and he certainly speaks lies that would get people to a place of desperation that would, they would even destroy themselves. But if Satan comes with an idea that seeds, that infects like a virus and multiplies without him having to do anything, is that more, not more effective? Since he is limited in power, he is not all-powerful, not omnipresent, He is a created being like we are. And so he needs to maximize his results, though he may be legion. So if he speaks a lie that infects, this is how I know he continues to do it, because these lies that I will share with you, you'll know fully, whether you've articulated them or not. Is God really there? And if he is there, is he really good? Because consider your life and look around you and look into this world. So, is God really there? Is He really good? And if He's both of those things, then He can't be powerful. Because He would do something about this for you, for them, for the world. And we go, yeah. And we become blinded, we become infected. And if we don't know the truth of his of God's word to counteract the lie, we can s- succumb. And now we too live lives one to another that believe those same those very same lies that he spoke to us. And whether we say it and repeat it or whether we just live it, it spreads like wildfire. God is not here, he is not loving, he is not good, he is not powerful. You're not really going to stake your life on on those things, are you? Don't be foolish. We know it. We've lived it. We've heard it. We are called to stand firm against it. To stand firm against the lies of the enemy with the shield of faith. Alongside one another. You may be weak, your shield is strong. And the shields of the ones next to you are holding it up. Even in moments of weakness, we are called to stand firm against those lies. And faith will extinguish it. Faith in what God has done. Paul spent three chapters slicing against Satan's lies with the truth of God's word. With his promises of who he is and what he's done. How deeply loved we are and pursued we are. We are twice chosen. That's the way he started his letter. First, you're chosen because He chose to create you, to make you, to make a new soul, to give you life. That was His first choice. You're twice chosen because even though you turned from Him and went astray, He's adopted you back into His family. He's called you back. He's chosen you again to lavish grace upon grace into your life. That's who you are. And He's given you power through Jesus and what He's accomplished. He's given you purpose God has prepared in advance works for us to do that we might walk in them. You have purpose and you have meaning. You have freedom. True freedom in Him. You are not alienated. You are brought near. You are unified into a family, into an army, and you have hope for eternity. You are already seated in the heavenlies. That's how God sees you. Not one day you'll get there by the skin of the teeth. No, He saved you, marked you, filled you with His Spirit, and seated you in the heavenly realms. It's already where you are are furthermore he fills you with his spirit daily be being filled with the spirit all it takes is an open posture and an invitation lord fill me yet again all of this second half of chapter 5 and now chapter 6 is a result of of what, what paul said be being filled with the spirit and this is what it looks like this is who you are because of who god is and what he's done that's what he's been saying that slices away at the lies of the enemy Proclaiming the truth. This is the battle that Paul is calling us to. To be aware of. In the heavenlies. He spoke five, at least five times of the heavenly realms in this letter already. Where we are seated. Where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. If we don't believe in the war. The spiritual war against the forces of the enemy. Against Darkness as our primary adversary. If we don't believe it, we'll never put on the armor. Why would we? We need to have our eyes opened. Remember, the whole of the Bible is consistent on this, by the way. I already mentioned Job as an example. Job found himself in the crosshairs. The battle was between God and Satan. Satan was opposing God. It's always where the battle is. Since the beginning, Satan has opposed God. We might find ourselves in crosshairs, on this earth. There is a connection between the earthly and the spiritual. Think of Daniel, by the way, praying through, Daniel being our next series after we finish Acts. So either give me encouragement to that end or say no if you know what Daniel has in its fullness. It's not really a story about Daniel in a lion's den. If, If anything, that's a picture of Daniel's whole life in Babylon in exile But I've been leaning into study of Daniel and been encouraged by it. And uh, there's also a whole lot of future stuff in there too. So let me know. But Daniel, toward the end of his letter, he is visited by an angel. And the angel says, I was coming to you, but I was delayed for three weeks because I was battling the prince of Persia. Persia was not an empire at that time. An angel is saying, I was battling in the heavenly realm and there was impact on earth. Now if that's too out there for you, then just look no further than Jesus himself who walked this earth and encountered Satan, his forces, his demons at seemingly every turn. Fully aware of both the physical and the needs there and the spiritual and that realm. He transcended both and walked in both at the same time. Awake, O sleeper. The war that is happening around us is in the spiritual realm. The influence of what happens here affects both and. Our Western society, with its high values on empirical data and reason and logic and rationale, we can quickly dismiss what we cannot see and prove. And yet our call as a follower of Jesus is to be fully aware of the spiritual realm and to walk by faith. Not easy, but simple. A sleeper Ask these kinds of questions. These came out of our Living Free course that many of you walked through last fall. When we encounter earthly things, battles, temptations, trials, difficulties, are you asking these kinds of questions? Is this trial just happening? Is this conflict in my marriage or family just happening? Is this division in the church just happening? Is this disease and illness I'm battling or, or my loved ones are battling. Is it just happening? Is the lack of spiritual hunger in our church, or the church, just happening? Are wars and famines and death and hardship in our world just happening? Maybe we have a fallen world. We are under a curse. We know that storyline. But if we're aware of the spiritual realm more than just what we can see, then these are the right questions to ask, and likely... The forces of enemy, the enemy, which are to steal, kill, destroy, and rob all hope, joy, life, and faith, are at work in these ways. And we are called to stand firm. We cannot afford to be ignorant or dismissive of the war. It's quite possible that the weakness in the church in the West today is directly proportional to the ignorance and the dismissal of the active work of Satan In the heavenly realms. And the battle that is raging. We have to be dismissive. Of far more than Paul and his words. But Peter. Peter who said be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around. Like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. And we have to be dismissive of Jesus too. John 10.9. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me. He will be saved. And he will go in and out. And find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He is a wolf who snatches and scatters the sheep. Lord, open our eyes. Awaken us. Let us not quickly dismiss everything we see and experience to the natural realm. Show us the spiritual realm. Teach us to stand firm. As we move toward clothes and sing to send us out. The goal isn't to go out there and try harder. It's to stand firm, to stand upon the promises. And just look to Jesus. Matthew 4, which hopefully many of you read not too long ago, when the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted. Don't just assume that the trials you're facing, the temptations that you're facing, and these battles that we're fighting are not intended by the Spirit. You will not be crushed by them. He will provide a way out of them. You will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. Assume that God wants to work in and through you in them. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. While he was fasting, he was weak and vulnerable. Satan came against him at that moment. That should be insightful, shouldn't it? At our moments of weakness, aloneness, even our moments where we are trying to pursue God most faithfully, Satan comes, and Satan comes with a lie. How did Jesus stand firm? This is so insightful for us. He quoted Scripture. He simply quoted Old Testament promises. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, Satan, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Be gone, Satan, Satan, For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. He simply quoted Scripture. This is the sword of the Spirit at work. How insightful that Jesus, though He had authority in Himself to say to Satan, be gone, He quotes Scripture to show us the way of the victory of the battle. The sword of the Spirit And by the way, I think this has to be said, and probably could be a whole sermon preached on it, maybe not a pleasant one, so I won't. But the sword of the Spirit is meant to battle the enemy, not one another. How many casualties and fallen soldiers have fallen by friendly fire as we've turned the sword against one another? The sword of the Spirit is for the enemy to cut through... his battle lines, and his defenses. We must stand together. Come to one another in longing for the truth, but laying down the sword as if we can inflict damage. What do we win and what do we gain by that? Speak the truth in love. We must know and live the word of God. It is vital. That's one of our core convictions. And we must rely on the Holy Spirit Jesus shows us that way, living in full dependence on the Holy Spirit, knowing the Word of God, standing firm against the enemy and his schemes. Invite the team to come now. Remember, these words are all flowing out of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So once again, as we think about any battle we might face, wondering how much of it's earthly and how much of it's in the spiritual realm, We are so desperately in need of the filling of the Holy Spirit yet again to stand firm. Simply through surrender and prayer, Lord, fill us yet again. Fill us yet again, Lord. We put on this armor daily. Teach us your word, Lord. Please continue to read through the Gospels and look to Jesus for the way. He is the way. I'm reminded of Tozer's words, A.W. Tozer. He said, if we really, if we don't really need him, if we only want him, we will never be filled. And I guess I would add, if we don't really believe that there's a spiritual realm or a very real spiritual battle, we'll never think it necessary to put on this armor. If we don't really need the power of God, if we just want it, we will never stand firm. Will we be a church, a people, his army, who is in desperate need of his filling, of his power, of his spirit amongst us? Because the battle is very real. But our posture in these moments, as we sing and respond, reflect what we hope our posture will be tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off. Any number of times this week when we're facing temptation when we're facing trial, when we want to escape and to run, will our posture be the same? Will we stand firm in His promises and proclaim who He is forevermore?